I want to invite you, in your, uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be beginning a new series today in the book or in the letter of 1 Timothy, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. going to read the whole chapter for us this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and, gene and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into feigned discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word there is truth, that all your word is truth, and that there we can be instructed as your people to come to a deeper knowledge and understanding of you and therefore a deeper love of you and also that we would 
submit ourselves under the authority of your word and conform our lives according to your instruction. And so grant us this by your spirit this very morning. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to truly receive your word and live according to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because we're starting a new book um, or a new letter, I, I want to give some introductory comments in regards to First uh, Timothy. Timothy, of course, was um, a very young man um, when he was in Ephesus, probably in his early 30s. Uh, and in, in the ancient world, in the Jewish world, that was very young. But he was instructed by the Apostle Paul uh, to remain in Ephesus for several different reasons. One of those reasons was doctrinal purity, which we see in verses 3 to 4. Timothy had no small task before him. Not only was he a young man, but there were false teachers in Ephesus trying to lead the church astray. And so Paul writes Timothy to instruct him and give him guidance in helping the church in Ephesus to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to know that Paul and Timothy already had a very strong relationship. In fact, I would argue from the New Testament, Timothy was probably the closest person to Paul. You see this indicated in verse 2, where Paul refers to him as his true child in the faith. Paul met Timothy for the first time um, on his second missionary journey. He was joined by Timothy in Lystra. You can actually read about this in the book of Acts. Now, most likely, uh, when Paul first met Timothy, he would have been in his late teens. We don't know for sure whether Timothy was a direct convert from Paul's preaching, but it is clear that Paul took him under his wing. We also know that Timothy was mixed. Uh, he, was, he had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. And that he shared the faith of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Um, Paul makes mention of this in 2 Timothy 1-5. Now most likely 1 Timothy was written um, in between Paul's two prison sentences around 61-64 to AD. 1 Timothy is often placed within a unit of books which have been called the pastoral epistles. Which is 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Now, 2 Timothy was probably Paul's last letter just before his death, and it's clear that he was in his second imprisonment when he wrote Timothy once again. Now, though these letters have been called the pastoral epistles, I actually don't think it's the most helpful term. For one, it wasn't defined this way until the late 1700s. Now, though there are pastoral concerns in the letter, I don't think that's fundamentally Paul's concern. Paul is concerned about the overall, overall well-being of the church. And because of this, he addresses many different things like doctrinal purity, but also church order, because he believes proper order will help the church grow in godliness. See, 1 Timothy is fundamentally about the flourishing of the church and therefore, Paul does address pastoral things, but the letters are not fundamentally about pastoring. Further, Timothy was not a pastor. 
in the typical way we think of pastor. People, many people will say he was a pastor. I don't think Timothy was a pastor. A better term for Tim- Timothy would be that of an apostolic delegate. An apostolic delegate. That is, the apostles gathered around them helpers and co-workers whose duties were to apply and maintain the apostolic instruction. As Gerald Bray notes, these helpers did not have the authority given to the apostles and so could not add to the deposit of faith that had been entrusted to them, but they could appoint local leaders who would share the apostolic duties of teaching and oversight. Timothy was one such helper and so was Titus. Both of them are instructed by Paul to find worthy men to entrust the gospel with. Paul sent these men as his delegates to instruct and further strengthen the already established churches that Paul had planted. And this is what I think is going on in 1 Timothy. Now with all that being said, I want to focus our attention this morning on the greeting in verses 1 to 2. The greeting. Now you may be thinking, really? You're going to preach a whole sermon on Paul's greeting to Timothy And the answer is yes, because there are some very important things that Paul conveys in the greeting that are both very practical and theologically important. The first thing that we see in Paul's greeting is his apostolic authority. Verse one, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, just like all of Paul's letters, he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is, he was uniquely set apart by Jesus Christ in the same way the other apostles were set apart to be his representatives in a distinct way. Now, the word apostle is the idea of sent one. That is, they were been sent, commissioned by Jesus Christ. And the, the, the 12 apostles were uniquely given a role in that calling. He and the other apostles were given a, an authority that is unique to them. We see this articulated in Ephesians 2, 18 to 21, where Paul says, For through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, so you and I, we are, we are all fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then Paul says this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now the household of God, which is a key theme in 1 Timothy, Paul says here, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And of course, Jesus being the cornerstone. And through this foundation and Christ as the cornerstone, the whole structure grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And notice here in 1 Timothy that Paul claims that his apostleship has come to him by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. He rests his apostleship in the command of God and of Jesus Christ. Now there's a few things we need to see here. 
Paul understood his calling as coming directly from the authority of God the Father. He understood his calling as coming directly from the authority of God the Father. The first reference to God, that is God our Savior, is clearly a reference to the Father as the Son is mentioned next, Christ Jesus our hope. You see, Paul believed his apostolic calling came from both God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now remember, in Paul's actual story, who was it that commissioned and commanded Paul? Did God the Father speak to the Apostle Paul? No. Acts 9 tells us that Jesus confronted Paul and commissioned him. And Paul understands that when Jesus commanded him to be a preacher to the Gentiles, it was also a command directly from God the Father. For God the Father always works through his beloved Son. As Chrysostom said, whenever the Son commands, this Paul considers to be the commandment of the Father, as those of the Spirit are the commands of the Son. What then? Does it derogate, that is, devalue from the power of the Son that his apostle was sent forth by the commandment of the Father? By no means, for observe how he represents the power as common to both. You see, right here in this greeting, you have allusions to the Trinity and Jesus' divinity. The single command came from both God the Father and God the Son, Christ Jesus. You also see this in verse 2, that the divine blessing that Paul pronounces over Timothy comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So this singular divine blessing comes from Jesus Christ our Lord just as it comes from God our Father. Now, I'm going to introduce you to maybe a new theological term. It's not a new term. It's actually extremely old, but for many of us, it might be new. And this term is conveyed here. The idea is conveyed here in this greeting. I'm going to make you think this morning. You need to use your mind, okay? God has given you a mind to think deeply. This term is called the doctrine of inseparable operation. The doctrine of inseparable operations. You can write that down. The doctrine of inseparable inseparable operations teaches that because the triune God is one in essence and will. Okay? God has one essence and he has one will. One God in three persons. When God acts, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the one singular act. Okay, so when God works, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the one singular act. Let me quote for you Matthew Barrett in his explanation of inseparable operations. Since the persons of the Trinity are indivisible, that is unable to be divided in essence, okay, you cannot divide the Trinity in his essence. God has one essence. They are also indivisible, that is, unable to be divided in their external operations, that is, their external works. Having the one simple will in common, they perform a singular act in any external operation. 
or in any of their works. So because the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is one in essence, when the Son acts, acts, so does the Father and the Spirit. Now why is this important? Well, there's a lot of reasons which, which I can't get into them this morning. But for one, it's important because we need to think about God rightly and articulate who God is and how he works rightly so that we worship and honor him rightly. Theology is the study of God, which is extremely practical because there's nothing more important than knowing this God. It's also important because I think it will help you as you read and study the scriptures. It will help you read and study the scriptures through a more Trinitarian lens, which will only serve you. You see, sometimes when you read the scriptures, you'll see one of the persons of God spoken of and doing an action. But it's important to read those passages with the understanding that the entire Godhead is involved in that one act, though the scripture may emphasize a specific person in relation to that action. So for example, in Genesis 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. We're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in Genesis 1, there's already mention of, of God Almighty and the Spirit of God. But in Genesis 1, there's no mention of the Son of God. But that doesn't mean he's not there participating in the same work as the Father and the Spirit. That's why in Colossians 1.15, Paul says this about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In other words... Though the Son of God is not mentioned explicitly in Genesis 1, Paul's Trinitarian theology leads him to conclude that the Son was there in creation as the Father and the Spirit were. Another example. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus raised himself from the dead. John 10, 18, Jesus says... No one takes it from me. That is, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. But the Scriptures also tell us that God the Father raised him from the dead. Galatians 1, 1 1-2, Paul in his greeting says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And the scriptures also allude to the Spirit of God raising Jesus from the dead. Romans 8.11 If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, the single act of Jesus' resurrection was done by the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul roots his apostolic authority in the one singular command of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we also know that he was empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill his calling. His apostolic authority came from the triune God. 
Now, why am I drawing such attention to Paul's apostolic authority? Well, because quite, quite frankly, it's strange that Paul stresses his authority in a letter he wrote to Timothy. Timothy didn't need convincing of Paul's apostolic authority. It would make more sense if Paul began his letter to Timothy in verse 2 rather than verse 1. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But he doesn't do that. He first articulates his apostolic authority. Why? Because Paul understood that this letter wasn't simply for Timothy, but for the church. We know this because of how Paul ended this letter. In chapter 6, verse 21, Paul gives his final blessing and he says, grace be with you. But that word you in the Greek is not in the singular, but the plural. In other words, grace be with you all. See, Paul understood that this letter would be read to the people. And Paul begins his letter by demonstrating his apostolic authority to back Timothy up, so to speak. You see, Timothy is a young man, and he's going to face opposition as he seeks to implement change in the life of the church. And Paul wants to make clear that the change that Timothy is implementing is directly from apostolic instruction given from God and Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a perfect comparison, but, but there are similarities. It would be like if, if Royal York had had for 40 years a faithful pastor, and that pastor was planning to retire, and he was involved in transitioning the church from his pastoral leadership to mine. And in his final message, he called Royal York to follow my lead just as they followed his lead. Now, what's he doing? Well, he's telling the church that, that he has my support and my backing. That's kind of like what the Apostle Paul is doing here with this letter. He's telling the church in Ephesus, I got Timothy's back. He has my support, and therefore, as an apostle, I exhort you to listen to him and follow him because what he's trying to implement is apostolic instruction. Now, why is this important for us today? What relevance does Paul's apostolic authority have for us today? Well, the same relevance it had in the early church, and it's had throughout all of church history. Paul's claiming that his authority comes from God, and therefore his instruction and message must be received as instruction from God. See, what the church has been doing for 2,000 years is handing down the apostolic message given to the apostles from Christ himself. Think about it this way. Every Sunday, that's what I'm doing when I preach. I believe that I'm handing down the apostolic message inspired by the Holy Spirit, given by Jesus Christ to his apostles. This is partly what I think Jesus meant when he said to his apostles in John 16, 12 to 15, where he says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak 
and he will declare to you the things that are that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit led the apostles into all truth. Remember, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, with Christ being the cornerstone. This is why the Nicene Creed states, we believe in one holy Catholic, that is, one universal apostolic church. Now, what's, significant, what's the significance of this? Well, the significance of this, uh, of this is, is the fact that I, I don't believe you can be a true follower of Jesus while rejecting the apostolic witness of Jesus. Like this kind of thing happens a lot today with people who claim to be professing Christians. There's a teaching by the Apostle Paul or Peter that they don't like and, and they'll say things like, well, that's the Apostle Paul, I follow Jesus. And my response is, well, you can't follow Jesus if you reject the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul was commissioned by Jesus to be his messenger. Or they'll say things like, I believe some of what the Apostles wrote was from God, but a lot of it isn't. And then the question is, how do you know what parts are from God and what parts are just their own opinion? Like, What's the categories you use to discern the parts in Paul's letters that are from God and those that aren't. And no one's willing to admit this, but it always, it's always how it plays out. The parts that are from God are the things that are always culturally acceptable. And the parts that are not culturally acceptable are clearly not from God. This happens all the time. Like, I've never met a professing Christian who believes only parts of the Bible are divinely inspired, who has then articulated that one of those parts that are inspired is the teachings of hell. I've never met a professing Christian who believes only portions of Paul's letters were divinely inspired and then concluded that one of those areas of divine inspiration is Paul's condemnation of sexual practices outside the context of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. I've never met someone like that. No, no. Whenever, whenever they try to disarm what Paul has said, whenever they try to argue that there's a portion of Paul that isn't actually inspired, it's always to do with sexuality. See, I've literally heard professing Christians say, that's just Paul's patriarchal interpretation of sexuality. God isn't concerned about your sexual behavior and practices and what you do with your body. Really? Really? God's not concerned about whether I'm sexually faithful to my wife? He's not concerned about whether doctors mutilate children all in the name of some crazy ideology? It sounds like to me you've created a God after your own imagination to allow you to feel no shame in your sexual perversions. 
It sounds a lot like what Jude 4 says of ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, before all of us is this simple question. Will you believe and follow the apostolic message and instruction handed down to us in the scriptures or not? Don't play games. There's no picking and choosing what you want to believe in it. You either believe what has been handed down is given to us as divine authority or not. And the question is, who is going to be your authority? Will it be the word of God or will it be what your preference is or what our culture says? Now, of course, there's still need to understand and interpret what's been handed down. But don't be a fool and think you can follow Jesus while rejecting his appointed means by which we learn to follow him. If you believe that Jesus gave us the apostolic witness, then your task as a follower of Jesus is to believe all that Paul has said and seek to understand all that Paul has said and seek to conform yourself to what he has said on behalf of our Lord. Paul has been given authority directly from God. Secondly, we see a God who saves and gives hope. Paul says his apostleship came from the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. A few things need to be pointed out here. First, notice the personal language. God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. This is the language of intimacy. He's not just some savior in a generic sense. No, no, he's our savior. He's rescued us. He knows us. Secondly, we often think of Jesus as the savior, which is true. But the father is our savior just as the son is our savior. In fact, two other times in 1 Timothy, Paul refers to God the Father being our Savior. In 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, where, where Paul instructs us to pray for those in authority, he says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy 4.10, he says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, the Father is not our Savior in that He did not die for us like the Son did. The Son alone clothed Himself in humanity and died upon the tree for our sins. But God the Father is our Savior in that He is the orchestrator, the originator, the author of our salvation. It was He in love that, who sent His Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. You see, we can truly say that all three persons of the one triune God has saved us. The Father as the originator of our salvation, the Son as the accomplisher or the one who secures our redemption, and the Holy Spirit who applies all the benefits of Christ's atonement to us. Salvation is the fruit of the Father's love for His creatures. As Calvin so beautifully says, Therefore, when we behold our salvation in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
we must also look to the very head and fountain from which he came to us. That is to say, from this love which God had for mankind. And this is the reason why St. Paul calls God our Savior. He is telling us by this word that as often as we think upon the prophet which Jesus Christ has brought us and we have received by him, we should lift up our hearts higher and know that God, having pity upon the lost state of all the flock of Adam, provided for us and gave us this remedy, namely our Savior Jesus Christ, who came to draw us out of the bottomless pit of death. This is who God is. And this is who he is to us as Christians. God, our father, is our savior. Now, the implication, of course, if God is the savior, it implies we need saving. Right here in Paul's greeting, we're already getting gospel undertones. God is our savior because we need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin and death. A basic definition of sin, according to the scriptures, is lawlessness. That is, we reject, we defy, we rebel against God's law of righteousness. We are guilty before him and stand condemned because of our lawlessness. But it's not just some rebellion against some theoretical law. No, no, when we rebel against God's law, we rebel against the person behind the law. It's defiance against our maker, the one who made us in his image and likeness. And because of this, the scriptures make clear that we stand condemned before our maker and deserve eternal death. This is why we need saving. And the same God whom we have sinned against in love has become the Savior of the world. Because as Paul says a little further down in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The God whom we sinned against sent his only begotten son to save sinners. And he did this by bearing the just penalty for our sins in our place. He died so that through him we might find the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And my question for you this morning is, do you know the God who declares himself the Savior of the world? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Not only that, Paul says that Jesus Christ is our hope. Not only do Christians believe God to be their Savior, but their hope resides in the one who died for them. Our hope as Christians don't reside in an idea, but in a person. A person who has died and has come back to life and has declared that one day he will return to make all things new. That one day sin, sorrow, pain, and suffering will be no more. That one day we will be delivered from the power of sin, the corruption of our bodies, and the evil of this world. You see, as Christians, we really have hope that one day the story will end with, and they lived happily ever after. Christian hope was a radical idea in the ancient world. And I would argue even today. For we're surrounded by so much hopelessness. But as Christians, no matter what may happen in our world, we always have reason to hope. 
Listen to Mount as he articulates how radical Christian hope was in the ancient world. The promise of hope was one of Christianity's most outstanding features in a world in which hope had little place. Popular belief was dominated by pessimism. The philosophers had dismissed the Olympian gods, but had not replaced them with an alternative that provided hope for people. Most could only see the fear and senselessness of chance and the arbitrariness and finality of fate. And the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks into that scene and offered people who had no hope everlasting, sure hope. A hope that is stronger than the power of death. Where does your hope reside? See, we all have hope in some way or another. And the question that matters is whether or not the object of our hope can truly be relied upon in granting us our hope. You see, if your hope resides in health, What will happen when your body begins to corrupt slowly or suddenly? If your hope resides in good looks, what happens when you start to age? What do you try to do? Well, you try to cover it up with all these different surgeries that in the end still make you look ugly. It's the truth. If your hope resides in your spouse or your children? What will happen when your spouse falls short or when your kids fail you and betray you? Or God forbid, one is suddenly taken from you. If your hope is in career and reputation, what happens when you lose your job or never get the job you were hoping for? All earthly hopes can be snatched from us. And when that happens, we are left without anything to stand upon. Whereas for the Christian, because our hope resides in Jesus Christ, we have a hope that can never be shaken and can never be taken from us. For our hope has wrestled with death and has come out the other side victorious. Our hope is more certain than the rising of the sun. It is more certain than the four seasons. It is even more certain than winter in Canada. Place your hope In Jesus, friend. If you're not a, quote, Christian, place your hope in Jesus this very day. Christian brother and sister, so long as I am your pastor, I will continue to shout this from the rooftops. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope isn't in a nation that is morally upright, though that would be wonderful. Our hope isn't in politicians, no matter how godly or good they may be. Our hope is not even in the church of Jesus Christ. Our hope is Jesus Christ and him alone. For he alone has conquered our sin and he alone has wrestled the great dragon of death and has prevailed. He alone has saved justified and sanctified us. He alone has brought immortality and everlasting righteousness. He alone has gone before us to make a home for us. It's because of him that we will dwell with God forever in a place where there is no need of sun or moon for the Lord God will be our light and the lamb will be our lamp. 
Christian, do not place your hope in things that will ultimately one day fail you. You see, we could say this is the creed of the Christian. God is my Savior and Christ Jesus is my hope. On these two truths, my whole life stands. We see a God who saves and gives hope. Third thing we see in this greeting is Paul's spiritual influence. His spiritual influence. After he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he directly addresses Timothy and calls him in verse 2, my true child in the faith. Paul was not Timothy's biological father, but spiritually he raised Timothy and trained him and discipled him in such a way that he could really refer to Timothy as his true child in the faith. There was an intimacy there, a connection there. If you spent time around Timothy and you already knew the Apostle Paul, you would know that Paul had, deep, had deeply influence in his life. You would have seen that, that, that they had rubbed shoulders, so to speak. Paul invested in him to such a point that Paul could entrust to his care the church in Ephesus. Now, I know the Apostle Paul is unique, but I think an important question for us to ask as followers of Jesus is this. Are we intentionally producing spiritual children? Do you aspire to have spiritual children? Or are you content to live the Christian life in such a way that you are always a child? Children, more often than not, are always taking. Whereas parents, more often than not, are always giving. At least that should be how it goes. Which better represents you? Are you determined to mature in your Christian life in such a way that you could confidently say to another Christian, follow me as I follow Jesus? Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. Are you determined to have that kind of influence in another person's life? Paul had a deep spiritual influence on young Timothy and prepared Timothy for what was before him. The final thing we see in this greeting is a God who delights to bless. As Paul says to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, we see that these divine blessings flow from the Father and the Son, demonstrating Jesus' divinity. Paul pronounces this divine blessing over Timothy because he believes that the God whom they serve delights to shower his people in grace, mercy, and peace. Now, with these three words, we have a theological triage. In these three words, Paul captures what Christianity is all about. There is a theological sequence here with these three words. The word grace is the foundation of the Christian life. It's God's grace that created us, saved us. It's God's grace that sustains us and empowers us. Grace does not have a beginning nor an end in our lives as followers of Jesus. We breathe the air of grace every moment of every day. 
We swim in the river of grace. Grace is not merely divine favor, but it is also divine empowerment to live the Christian life and to walk in the ways of Jesus. You see, every command given to us in the scriptures assumes that the Christian can only walk according to that command because of the grace of God in his or her life. How about mercy? Well, where would, where would we be without mercy? Mercy is that reminder of our need for forgiveness, not just at one time in our lives, but daily. We are dependent upon the mercy of God every moment of every day. Every day, mercy is at work in our lives because we haven't got what we deserve, the pure, holy justice of God. It's only because of God's mercy that we could ever hope to be recipients of his divine blessing. And lastly, Paul pronounces peace over Timothy. Peace is fitting because peace is what results from God's work of grace and mercy in our lives. We have been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our hope. And now we are sons and daughters of the living God who is our Savior. We were once his enemies, hostile toward God. But now we have been reconciled and called his very sons and daughters. And no matter what may happen in this life, no one, no one can take from me the peace that I have with God and no one can take from you the peace that you have with God. And one day, one day he has promised to establish this peace upon the earth where wholeness will be restored and evil will be done away with. We know a God who is our Savior. We know a, our, our Christ who is our hope. We know a God who delights to bless, a God who delights to shower us with grace, mercy, and peace. This is our Savior. This is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in this short greeting, there is so much beautiful truth to behold. That you are our Savior. That you orchestrated and planned our redemption from before the foundations of the world. And you sent forth your Son in the fullness of time to accomplish what you planned. To die for our sins and to rise from the dead and to ascend to your right hand. And because of that, he is our hope. And Lord, we ask that you would shower upon us grace, mercy, and peace, that we might treasure you and walk in your ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.